though I should introduce myself. Uh, my name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a professor of history at Drexel University and I've studied disasters for 20 years. I am not a pandemic expert and I'm not a public health expert. I'm a researcher and a writer who's interested in the ways that history has shaped the disasters that we face around the world today. I'm on Twitter a lot and you can find me there and my handle at US of Disaster or using the hashtag COVID calls. And you can find me on the Drexel University History Department website too if you wanna send me an email. I just wanna take a couple of minutes here at the beginning before introducing the first guest uh, to say where this idea came from. My idea for COVID calls is basically captured in the name. Whenever a disaster strikes, I have a habit of calling around and I call doctors and health experts humanities and social science researchers like me, planners, architects, emergency managers, sometimes elected officials, they don't usually call back, uh, journalists, teachers, sometimes artists. And this time with the pandemic breaking out, it seemed like if I was gonna make these calls, I may as well see if anyone else was interested in jumping on the call with me. So I'd like to thank everybody who's joining me for this discussion today. These discussions will be recorded and they will be released in podcast episodes as soon as I can make them available. So let's get started then. We have a lot to cover today, and I want to introduce uh, the first guest for COVID Calls, Gigi Quick Granval. I'm just gonna say a couple of words uh, of her bio so you can get to know her a little bit. Dr. Granval is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her area of expertise is immunology. Dr. Granval's work at the center addresses the role of scientists in health security, how they can contribute to an effective technical response against a biological weapon or a natural epidemic. Dr. Granval is an author. She's the author of the book, Synthetic Biology, Safety, Security, and Promise, as well as the book, Preparing for Bioterrorism, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's leadership in biosecurity. And uh, Gigi and I first met in 2018 when I participated in a panel discussion, which was held about the, on the 100th anniversary of the 1918 influenza pandemic. This was at the American Society for Microbiology Biothreats Conference. As a historian, I was definitely a fish out of water there, but was very pleased to be invited to speak. And uh, I'm happy to talk with you again today, Gigi, although I'm really sorry it's under these circumstances, but when I thought about calling around this time, you're literally the first person I thought to call, and I'm really um, pleased that you were willing to do this in, in this webinar format with me. Well, so we're going to take about a half an hour, and then uh, we'll open up for Q&A. So we'll have a discussion, and then we'll open up for your questions. You can use the Q&A feature uh, in Zoom or the chat feature to send a question, or you can tweet a question. And later you can send me feedback on Twitter or by email. I'll try to keep up as best I can. Okay, so you've heard enough from me. Let's hear from, from our expert. Gigi, thank you again for making time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's really, and it was, I've been thinking a lot about how different um, a place we are now than we were when we had this, this conversation in uh, 2018. It was, we were celebrating the, the 100 years from that pandemic and all the incredible things that had happened since that time, but also trying to like warn people a little bit and say, you know, this could happen again. And, um, you know, but I don't, 
it just, this is a very interesting moment going back over my slides and thinking of, you know, trying to, to communicate the, the peril that we were, you know, that we thought could happen with another pandemic. And, and now things are, are very different in, in many ways, but, uh, but worse in, in others. So. I mean, it, that see, it, things that happened a week ago to me sound, seemed like about five years ago. But, right. you know, things that happened two years ago seemed to me like a lost world at this point. And I, um, we reserve some time, I think, to make some comparisons between now and 1918. But I wondered if you wouldn't mind um, starting out. It's sort of an impossible task, but maybe bring us up to speed on your own thinking, what are the things we should be paying attention to right now in this sort of daily deluge of information? Where, where are we now and, and what are you paying most attention to right now? Well, um, so from the beginning, I, I'm a, I should just say I'm a scientist, I'm not a modeler, um, but one of the things that has bothered me right from the beginning is the lack of a denominator. And, um, and there have been, so there's been some incredible research that's been done right from the beginning of this virus. So that's a big difference from 1918, or 1918 and how much we know about the virus now and that we have tests and everything else. Um, but we don't, we don't have, uh, we weren't organized to do the kind of large scale research to be able to answer questions that we really need to know. And the denominator of how, who is, who has been infected for how long, how long does it take to, um, how long are they infectious? Um, when, you know, how long will immunity last? Things like that, questions that are, that have operational consequences, um, you know, we, we don't have a good handle on. I guess South Korea has the best um, information for us, but, um, but, you know, it's sort of a, uh, I'm trying to keep track of lessons learned for the future and, and being poised to do research in the midst of a crisis and to get this kind of information is something that has to be planned for. So that's one of the things that um, I'm trying to hold on to as, you know, how would that happen in the future? Because eventually this will end, but we know that it's very easy to have um, these terrible experiences just fly into the background and then we just go on life as usual. So how, what can we draw from that would be really useful now for the future? That's a huge challenge to ask people to respond, to be responders in real time or almost real time and also to imagine running the research and capturing important data right. literally in the moment. I mean, I know, you know, in the history of disaster research going back into the Cold War, uh, that was a, a constant challenge for researchers there. And they had uh, the backing of the, you know, Defense Department to do that. I'm not sure right. we have those kind of resources today. No, no, we don't. But, um, but what we do have now is, is um, a clear need um, for that information. And so, and so the resources that it would take to get that kind of information in the future, I think that case is more clear now than it ever will be. Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, um, I was a little bit, um, I, I knew a little bit about the DOD response to Ebola in 2014, because I was on an advisory committee, um, I'm still on an advisory committee, but looking into that, into what DOD was doing, and they, assign a group of people to track every single thing that, um, that the Department of Defense does and to create an historical record for lessons learned in the future. And they have those kinds of resources, but, you know, but that, is, that is something that 
you know, maybe we should think about for, for these public health types of crises. So you mentioned the Ebola outbreak. I wonder if you could do a little comparison for us here with that one, with the 2002 SARS pandemic, with 2009 H1N1. How is this different? Well, um, so SARS 2004, three and four, um, we were extraordinarily lucky um, that, I mean, it, it was a terrible disease. The people who had it, um, you know, it was very unfortunate. It was, um, it was really horrible for older people in particular. Um, but the U.S. really escaped most of the consequences, and it really was more um, of a problem for healthcare workers and, and healthcare facilities. So it was, it was possible to contain. I, I wonder when this is all done if we will conclude that it was never possible to contain this virus, but we will we'll see. I mean, I think you know, that there are still people who uh, public health experts who say that we can still contain it in some circumstances or at least you know, flatten the curve as they're describing it. Um, so, so that's SARS. Um, it, caused, uh, it caused a lot of economic damage um, and that, that will probably uh, pale in comparison to what we have now. But um, one of the things that stuck with me was that um, the, the restaurant, uh, restaurants in Chinatown, New York, suffered more from SARS when there were no cases in New York or in the US. Um, they suffered more in that, that circumstance than they did after 9-11. Um, and so, so that just shows you, you know, the role of stigma and, and economic uh, damage. In 2009, I have a very um, personal feeling about it because I was in one of the high-risk groups at the time. I was pregnant with my now 10-year-old. And, um, and so for most people, I think the lesson of 2009 was like, oh, it wasn't a really big deal. But it was a big deal for for um, expectant mothers, and it was a big deal for younger people who um, who had much higher rates of mortality than in uh, the usual flu. So, um, so I think that kind of is an underrated disaster in 2009, um, and um, and that's even with all the peril of this one, that's one of the bright spots for me is that it seems like kids are. Uh, relatively mildly affected by this uh, by this virus. Can you e explain that to to a non scientist like me? I mean, I know that it's it's early, maybe to draw any kind of conclusions, but even to to make a statement like that that it seems to be hitting um, children not as hard as it's hitting older adults. What's your basis for that claim, and are you confident that that is comparable in say Italy? The figures I saw yesterday seem to indicate that, but right. can we be confident that'll be the same in the U.S. Um, well, so the, right now there's quite a bit of data on this. Um, there was a paper, I think that just came out this morning. It seems like a long time ago, but I think it was this morning in BioArchive um, that showed very nicely that um, while uh, babies um, have some more severe symptoms, like under a year, um, that for kids it's, it's relatively mild, possibly asymptomatic um, in many cases, which is a problem for, for transmission. But, um, but the mortality rate is very low and, and um, very mild disease. And they, haven't, they did a nice job of breaking down um, uh, the different like, gradations of, of symptoms. So, 
the mechanism of action, what you're asking, like why is it that older adults are um, more affected? I I don't know. I think that's a that's a great question, and it's gonna. There num. I mean, I I think it's an open research question. I don't I don't have an answer. Well, let's talk about the closures a little bit. You mentioned um, earlier that uh, things don't have to be closed for people to avoid them. I mean, I think that's one of the the lessons here, but let's talk about, and we might come back to that, but let's talk about formal closures a little bit. Even since this morning, Drexel University, my employer, which had planned to go online for only the first half of our spring term, has now said they're going fully online all the way till June 6th. That takes us up to graduation and we're, you know, from there, I feel like we're, you know, it's a see you in September kind of kind of thing almost, or at least in person, and I worry about that. That's happened today, as well as a a, um, um, closure curfew for the state of New Jersey from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m., which I've been scrambling, and I can't even find a historical precedent for something like this. So, and schools, obviously, uh, school districts. So can you walk us through a little bit when you think about the logic of closure and what you're drawing right now from the, the sort of decision-making processes that you, what can you intuit about closures? What, what can we say about them? Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I was very, I'm not a modeler, I should say, but I was very um, not as positive about school closures as some because, because of this, because, you know, so stu- uh, kids are in school, they have a routine, they do their work, they come back, um, now you have much more, um, they're, they're going to different places. And so all these other closures had to be in a, put into place, like closing gyms and closing play areas, um, because people, were, people are angry at others for treating it like a snow day instead of um, a, a public health event. But, um, you know, I, I, have, I guess I have um, limited faith that people understand the public health nuances of what they're going to, they're, they're supposed to be doing and without clear instructions. So, um, so yeah, I, I, that's why I, there's a lot of other reasons why closing schools is difficult too. I mean, and, and I'm in Baltimore city and, and there's a bunch of kids here who rely on the schools for food and uh, shelter and, um, you know, child abuse rates go up when, when kids are home and there's just a lot of other factors involved. And, but we're, we're all in on school closures. And um, so Baltimore is only closed for a couple of weeks. It's probably gonna be longer. Hopkins is, um, is, um, is just for online for a few weeks, but it's probably going to be extended, um, even though there hasn't been an official word. I'm making my in-person classes be online for, for all of this term that starts the week after this one. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's everything is closing down. Is there some um, way to understand this uh, curfew versus closure issue? I mean, is this uh, governor of New Jersey doesn't have confidence that bars and restaurants will close in in, in as symmetrical a way as he would like, and so he's just going to call a curfew? I haven't seen that anywhere else in the U.S. yet, although, you know, we've been talking for 17 minutes, so maybe it's happened, but I mean, well, there's a. I mean, it's a lot of these things are are. They might be. There might be some public health behind them, but I mean, they're ultimately a political decision, and and so um, so there is a certain faddishness to it. That you know, once one 
governor does this, it might, it might spread. So let me ask you, uh, if you wouldn't mind, since we're talking about government a little bit, um, how is the CDC performing? That's a very broad question, I guess. But, you know, what are the, what are the wins and losses right now? Where are they doing as well as you would hope? And, and where do they need to be doing better? Yeah, I mean, the testing um, has been a big challenge for the, the nation, for CDC, and that's being, now that uh, other labs are able to do it, it's being ramped up considerably. I've been thinking a lot about the, um, the CDC role, but just generally the role of government in this. Um, and, uh, and again, thinking with an eye to the future, like how, how will we have uh, biosecurity and public health coordinated uh, in the future, I have a feeling that there's there's a lot of argument over which office and which which position in the National Security Council is responsible for it and whether it was cut in this administration and um, and there's another post today uh, opinion um, in the post about uh, how it wasn't it wasn't cut out of the administration. Regardless of those details, I think that in the future, we're going to see a much more um, prominent role, or at least I hope so, of somebody that can coordinate all the resources, the considerable resources that the US government has to fight pandemics and to make sure that regulations um, are not stumbling blocks, that people can work together and make sure that businesses are brought in when they have to be, or before they're, they're needed um, so that it's not so reactive. Um, I mean, I, th I have a feeling this, this crisis would be extraordinarily difficult no matter who is, how prepared you are, but, um, but there are some things that preparation can do and having a very senior person or a group of people that have been exercising this and planning and have had resources, that would really help in this situation. One of the questions already in the chat, and I want to encourage anybody who wants to ask a question, go ahead and type it in the chat, is from Kim Fortune, uh, an anthropologist at UC Irvine, and she's asking uh, directly about this, this pandemic um, council and the, this pandemic uh, office in the National Security Council and its closure in September of 2018. Can you just give us some context for this? Because I think a lot of people, you know, they maybe see a headline here and they think, well, it's just one more thing the Trump administration did, or it's one more thing John Bolton did because he wanted to reorient the National Security Council. Um, you know, presidents do reorganize right. the National right. Security Council and the executive branch constantly. Mm -hmm. But having said that, not only does that seem like a strange move to make, but an unnecessary move to make. And now it looks like a, a, a really dangerous move to have made. Are we making too much of this or can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I, yeah, um, I, I know the people in, involved um, for sure and have kind of followed what, they're, what they've done. Um, and, uh, and I think that there's a broader lesson without getting involved in the, in the politics of it. Um, I think that the, the, there's, there's certainly um, a lot of people in national security have not always placed the emphasis on the potential for biosecurity to ruin their day um, or have a pandemic um, occur on their watch. I think um, a lot of that's very common in national security circles. It wouldn't surprise me if that's how John Bolton feels. 
um, about things. Um, but um, regardless, I think this demonstrates pretty clearly that uh, that you know that that's just not the case, and that these economic links um, between you know how a, a, a pandemic and the the economy and national security are pretty um, you know they're pretty obvious now. But they're not always they're not always obvious in non-pandemic times to people who who are uh, you know who think of national security in terms of just uh, you know forward uh, power, you know the military power. Um, so I, I yeah I without without um, it's hard to know if uh, if that was the worst thing they could have done or or if it was just a matter of consolidation like they are claiming. Um, but all I can say is that, you know, going forward, we need to make sure that that office uh, or that a person has that ability to bring different agencies together so that, um, so that there's more smooth coordination. Let me ask you a little bit more about that. This is another question from uh, Tiago Saraiva. He was asking about this, this split between biosecurity and pandemic preparedness more generally, mm -hmm. which... I wonder, I mean, is this an artifact going back to September 11 that we somehow treat some uh, biological concerns as security issues and so it's under war, you know, it's under that sort of part of the commander in chief's purview. And then health is a separate, is a separate thing and it's an HHS thing. I, I mean, I guess his question was a little more pointed than that, which is that were we spending time thinking about terrorism when we should have been thinking about the more predictable risk of a pandemic, um, you know, I don't think I don't think that's generally the the case. Um, I think um, follow, right after September 11th, that was in the anthrax letters. That was much more the case that it was, uh, you know, natural maybe um, naturally occurring diseases weren't as uh, um, as prominently you know funded or talked about as as other biosecurity concerns. But I think that. Um, if anything, the pendulum swung the other way, um, so that you know it was it was necessary to point out that for biosecurity issues, um, there are some things that are just different. That you know you're not um, like a, if a person is behind an attack, they can do things in a much more diabolical manner than you know than nature, which is not intentional, would could do. So I mean I think uh, I don't I don't think that that is necessarily the case. Um, there are some when you go into the details like um, like how we treat pathogens and pathogen pathogen security um, those can can be inhibitory to to public health um, how we share samples things like that um, that is that has been uh, negatively influenced by security and who can work with um, some in some high containment laboratories and things like that that is much more difficult and expensive than it um, than it was when we were only really worried about naturally occurring diseases. Mm -hmm. I think of the, the one of the reasons I asked that is I think about the distinctions that were made around funding after 9-11 for emergency management departments and terror reduction and public health departments which are you know have long standing been underfunded. Right. And I mean, this seems in some ways, this 2018, you know, reorganization of the NSC seems to me to almost re reproduce that a little bit, or have I got this wrong? I mean, you're, you're proposing a more robust definition of biosecurity, which should encompass the economic losses and the insecurities that come with a pandemic, 
more generally. But I worry that that divide is still is still there and it's oh, the divide is still is still there. There are some people who um, I would say that uh, you know it's it's generally because um, because there have not been that many uh, biological intentional biological incidents. Um, you know, biology is not it's just not often. Uh, part of the national security mindset for a lot of people and and that's that's ch I mean it's it goes up and down but it, it's changing um, you know but it's it has not it, it didn't used to be it used to be that nuclear was the only the only real security issue and um, right right I want to put a pin in that because when we think about uh, troop readiness in World War two and in World War one uh, biosecurity and pandemic are over are overlapping. I mean, certainly with with World War One. So, I mean, if we look back to history, I feel like it's it's sort of an artificial divide across those across those two. Um, the, go ahead if you want to respond to that. No, oh, I, I mean, I just um, I was working on a history of biological weapons uh, lecture, and and um, you know, we were very fortunate that uh, so even though the first one occurred in World War, first program was in Germany in World War One targeting horses as transportation, um, you know, it's, we were fortunate that it wasn't a big, uh, big source of, um, you know, it wasn't used much in World War II and beyond. Yeah. Let me pick up a question here from Ryan Hagen. Um, I'm just going to read it. Organizations from the federal government on down have been doing pandemic planning for years, and many of the planning assumptions seem to have been around influenza. Right. A lot of the response seems quite improvised, especially in higher education, he's talking about now. So what accounts for this need for improv? Is the fundamental behavior of this virus so different from influenza that pandemic flu plans are not helpful right now? Was the planning inadequate or are those plans just sitting on the shelf? I mean, time has passed since the last, um, I mean, you, you mentioned 2009. Um, I mean, it seems like yet just yesterday, but it's a while ago now. And, um, and so there's a lot of turnover and people are not, you know, have not been exercising those plans and, and you know, doing tabletop exercises or, or run-throughs of how they would react. There's no money for that anyway, um, uh, outside of some of the bigger health departments. Um, so there's that. There's uh, influenza is a very reliable um, cause of pandemics, and and we've we've lived through. Um, some people have lived through very uh, quite a few of them, and um, and so we know a lot about it. We and the, but the testing infrastructure, the capability of making vaccines, we've got. There's a lot more that we could do, and there's a lot more that we know about this virus, and. We're more looking for what's the next one versus um, learning. I mean, we're learning about the virus, but there's there's it's building on such a such a uh, there's there's so much already out there that that is already known. Um, so it's 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 just different to respond to. Um, even pandemics have been studied so carefully when it comes to influenza, uh, whereas this um, you know the this coronavirus um, it's. It's not the first time we've had to deal with this, and it probably will not be the, the last, but there's just a, a, just a starkly less amount of research on it. Um, there are a few laboratories that are leading the way, but, um, and there's been a tremendous amount of genomic research that's done. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing how fast that, that process has gone, but um, to get to 
I mean, we would have already been trying to, to develop new vaccines and had a good idea that they would work for influenza. Um, there are vaccines in development now. There's uh, for 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 this, but it's um, you know it's are they going to be successful? It's really too early to tell, and it's going to be at least a year and a half before we before we really know. So for on the vaccine side, you think at least a year and a half? Um, yeah. So the there I guess clinical trials started today with one um, with one company that's doing an mRNA vaccine. It's um, I so far that technology has only been um, used in some uh, animal vaccines, so some vet veterinary vaccines, and um, hopefully it'll be it'll work in people and and the testing will go well. But I mean it's a, it's it's early days. Hmm. So maybe you can address this. Um, I was hearing this coming out of the UK. I don't think it's stuck very long, but there were officials, I think even Boris Johnson, waving at this idea that, well, it's better if we all just go ahead and get it. We can't wait for the vaccine, let the herd immunity take over. So let's not worry about closures. Let's not worry about flattening the curve. I see from the look on your face, you're feeling about that. But I mean, really, if, if a public official said to you, yeah, I mean, that's the best way, right? I mean, you know, um, before there was a measles vaccine, everybody got measles. So okay. let's just let the herd immunity take over. Do you, can you? Yeah, do, I mean, you... The, the, so the measles, I mean, yeah. So um, I think they've backed away from, from talking about herd immunity specifically. Um, uh, I think the whole goal for trying to, to limit spread with all these closures, at least what I understand to be the goal is to try and keep the hospital and healthcare system from being overwhelmed. So, so I, I can appreciate sort of the, you know, the cynical grim inevitability that, you know, that people say, well, it's all going to happen anyway, but I mean, but everyone will have better outcomes if, if that curve is flattened and the, and the people are not, you know, the if hospitals are able to receive the um, people who need care. So, um, so yeah, it, it doesn't sound like a great approach. And I think that it reflects, you know, the reaction to that has, has uh, you know, they've changed that based on those reflections. That's a very diplomatic answer, almost as if you had been asked that by a public official before, but I'm not going to ask you to name any, any names about that. Um, I'm going to get a couple other questions here. We have a question from Mimi Scheller. Uh, Mimi asks, I'm very interested in the mobility shock of suddenly shutting down many kinds of travel yeah. uh, and in relation to ramping up of emergency mobilities as well, evacuation, crucial workers, logistics of medical equipment, and food supplies. She's asking if there are historical precedents on how to manage this, uh, what she's calling a sudden mobility disruption at a global scale. Yeah, I mean, that's why we've been urging um, against complete lockdown. I mean, so all these terms do not have, you can't like open a public health text and say, what's the definition of lockdown? There's a lot of argument over what's, what the different definition of quarantine is, you know, and, 
and that is because people have different you know people um make it uh nicer than the technical definition um because you know uh, the technical definition will will mean that some well people will be exposed to some potentially sick people that aside there's no definition of lockdown. I think everybody wants, uh, try, we're trying to urge that, you know, people, if they have necessary travel, that they should be able to do so. And um, it's just a matter of limiting it. Um, we have, we've done a number of uh, kind of uh, um, big tabletop exercises. And we had one just a few months ago um, called Event 201 that we uh, did with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Economic Forum. and. And some of the, a lot of the recommendations that came out of this were the need to keep travel and trade um, going as, as, as best as possible. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, people are immediately going to, um, uh, to, to limiting travel. Um, the trade is, I guess, the most important thing that goods can still get from one place to another and that medical personnel can still find their way from one place to another. But um, I, I don't know, I don't have an example where this has happened. Um, do you, you said you were looking into historical um, examples of this, but usually in uh, public health is trying to, you know, keep people from sick people from infecting others, but keeping trade going as much as possible and to try not to, to tank others, you know, countries, economies. So that's the only, the examples I, I'm sorry, I mean to cut you off. No, no, no. Examples that have been on my mind a lot have to do with war. I mean that, you know, in war is the, are the wars are the largest scale disasters that from which we've collected more data than any other kind of disasters right. and they cut across every sector and pandemics within wars like the 1918 are particularly i think historically useful for us even at this at this moment so it's it's usually the national border closures around wars that we could look to i think if we wanted to model if you stop the flow of people or supplies sometimes very rapidly what the impact, what the impacts are in health systems, in education systems, in logistics and economics, um, and so, I mean, to me, that's another reason that conceptually I'd want to erase that sort of biosecurity and health um, division. Mm -hmm. Thinking as a historian, I wanted to also just note something. A minute ago, you said that because um, I think all the social scientists on this call all of a sudden their heads started tingling when you said well, it's hard to define quarantine and it's hard to, that there's a definitional slippage here sometimes because a lot mm -hmm. of different terms mean different things in different settings. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly, we have to be careful with historical analogies because if we flatten those historical analogies sometimes and say, well, this is the one lesson we learned from this pandemic, um, we may be learning those the wrong lessons or learning oh, absolutely. right? Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about that because um, so next week I have to have my 1918 flu class um, entirely online and have a discussion about this. And and last year, looking at my slides, it was all about like, we're just, we're so much the same as they were in 1918. Think about all the similarities, all the ways that, and we, um, I have them read this book. Um, have you read Catherine Ann Porter's uh, Pale Horse, Pale Rider? It's 
So just so that the young people in my class that take my class can imagine themselves as young people in 1918 and, and all that that entails, you know, so to make it like to take that black and white photo and make it, you know, a little bit more real to them. But like, there's a big difference between now and 1918. And I think it's really important to not oversimplify it and flatten the history too much. I mean, you know, horses were a major form of transportation. Um, we, they did not know that it was a virus that was causing the, the 1918 flu. Like they had never, they, there was, they were searching, they eventually blamed this poor bacteria that didn't, was, not, was not the cause. Um, there were like, Hopkins was one of the leader in, in medical in the US in, um, in, in the way that they approached medicine, but a lot of medical schools were still, you know, dealing in humors and stuff at that time. So this is not, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible to kind of, and then of course there was the, the reason, I'm sure everybody that's on this Twitter feed knows that why they called it the Spanish flu is because there's the free press in Spanish in Spain and like, and everywhere else, there was no free press because of the war. So there's a lot that's different. Uh, issues of, of press suppression and how quickly information flows. Right. Um, yeah, that's really important, sort of another sort of comparative angle. I wanna to get to another couple of questions here. Gabrielle Heck asks, what are the prospects for an antibody test to find out whether people have had uh, COVID-19 and she uh, shares that she and others um, that she knew thinks they might have had it three or four weeks ago before testing was even an option and she suspects there are hundreds if not thousands like her would antibody testing be beneficial for public health purposes and I want to fold that so think about that and then there's a second question that came um, from Roland Wall which is um, why has there been a delay in the in the testing. So maybe you can address those two together. Right, so serologic testing, basically finding out if you have antibodies to, to the virus. So you may have, may have felt sick, you may not have, but you know, turns out you had it, you recovered, you have antibodies to it. Um, that test, I don't, I don't believe that it is available. I don't know when it will be, um, but that is, we have, uh, if you want a little more information about, about that, we have a, um, a fact sheet on our website about serologic tests and what they can do and, and what the steps are. So it's a little bit, tried to make it as non-technical as possible, but, it's, um, but we have a whole COVID-19 section on our website and it's one of those fact sheets. Um, so yes, that would be extremely useful. I think once we have that, we're gonna find uh, a lot of people who had no idea that they were exposed. Um, but you know we're asymptomatic, and and that'll give us a much better idea of the denominator, which I, um, is really the, you know, just how how widespread has this virus been? Because there's a lot of time between first um, discovery and um, and where we are now. The other thing, um, so let's see. Oh, so another thing that's going to be important once that serologic testing is more available is um, is being able to say, okay, you're in the time before there's a vaccine, um, we're going to then have a population of people who we know are not susceptible or we don't think are susceptible to um, to the virus. So it'll be, um, we need to think of ways to um, 
standardize that or have standards surrounding that so we know who are the healthy cleared people um, who might be um, not at risk for, for getting it um, that can work in different settings um, and maybe uh, you know is there is there are there some jobs where it might be a good idea to have already been uh, ha had the disease I see let me pick up on a question that Roberto Morris asks he's asking about the role of technology right now um, in, in the absence of a vaccine and particularly he's um, he's asking about social media uh, about fake news about our dependence on information technology right. as a sort of broad area of your interest and concern I mean on, as I think about it on the one hand I think um, in the absence of a vaccine and in the absence of clear instructions about quarantine right. that you would imagine and I, it wasn't that long ago I can imagine that I can remember that people talked about the internet as a great tool of public education around health and that right. this will make us all healthier because we'll anybody will be able to get health information anytime they they want we have that sort of enthusiasm on one side tempered by reality on the other side we have the concern that there's disinformation in our in our social media systems, which may be impacting people's behavior. There's a huge area of research, I know, but I wonder how you, how you enter it, what you think about the role of technology, particularly information technology right now. Yeah, I mean, what you just said, um, have you ever read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? So um, Douglas Adams, uh, the, he envisioned this babble fish, right, that would translate whatever everyone said and, and you know, opened up all this communication. And then he said, you know, it started, it's, it was the basis of more wars than any other technology in history. Um, so I guess that's what I think about it. I guess, um, you know, uh, the role of, of uh, the internet, I think there's been a lot of good positive uses of it to have pressure on public officials, um, to uh, bring experts together, um, uh, to the scientific collaboration that has, um, that has occurred um, in real time to develop diagnostic tests, uh, to learn about the virus, to, um, to share the genomic details of the virus and be able to, to study it. I mean, all of those things are incredibly positive. Um, how to counter the, the misinformation and stuff, that's a little bit outside my area, except to, to, uh, to note that it's, it's terrible. And, and just like any other research problem, I, I think we need to be much more uh, deliberate in how we counter it. And these kinds of uh, like, you know, scolding people who are out uh, um, drinking um, or uh, all these problems, all these social problems, I think they could benefit from some research to actually figure out how to stop them versus um, just, you know, observing the problem. Mm -hmm. the, I've heard this term already in use, the COVID scold. Yeah. Um, that people are, again, maybe they're using the the coronavirus concern as a way to voice sort of more traditional sort of social normalization, which is, and, and, you know, to try to make some behaviors normal and some abnormal in the context of this, which is not anybody who studies disasters know that disasters, they produce politics, but they also reveal the politics and the biases that are in our midst. They don't create a new world that didn't exist before. Right. 
Yeah, well, I look forward to reading that analysis that people do on that topic because, but I found it um, fascinating to to watch just as a you know as a person interested in these things. There's a question here from uh, Christina, which might be we can I'll pose and then we can I can follow up with you later. She's wondering if there's reading on pandemic and quarantine, uh, national security and disease that you might recommend as background reading for interested lay. People. Oh, sure. Um, you know, please reach out to me. We've got our website has a lot of stuff on it. Um, uh, but, you know, if you just Google my name, um, my email is also on there, too. It's uh, just ggronfall at jhu.edu. Um, happy to, to help. It's this is one of the, the fascinating things about this area of research is that, um, you know, there's so many disciplines that um, have to be corralled together to think about these problems. And um, there is the, the medical, the scientific, the public health, the anthropological, there's just a lot of stuff that to be able to, to um, think about the best way to have a public health response or to analyze what happened before. So, so the more the merrier. Do you have those in your center or any other centers you know, do you have those multiple different perspectives represented? Yes, yeah, we do. And that's, uh, that's uh, what, what has made us so unique. Um, also that we're a kind of a, a standalone center that we work uh, together on these problems. And um, it's not like 10% of our, our job with, uh, with somebody who is across town um, at another part of the university. So yeah, we're, we're uh, an independent um, part, a, a little group at Hopkins that, that studies these things. And it, it was started originally by D.A. Henderson, who led the smallpox eradication program, um, because he he thought that you know that there was the, that all of these issues were more of a public health issue and medical issue and not a military issue, and and the military was treating um, the potential reintroduction of uh, extinct diseases as a as a national security issue, but not like something that the rest of us wouldn't have to deal with. Hmm. That's, so that's the genesis of the center. Mm -hmm. That's so amazing. So in 1998. Yeah, so we've been around for a while. Okay, but it was only, oh, it was around for three years though before September 11 and then, and mm -hmm. then it came this sort of wave of federal funding for bioterrorism concerns. Yep. Mm -hmm. I, there are not many centers in the world that um, I'm aware of that actually try to bring um, public health researchers, medical researchers, social scientists. Do you have economists there as well? We do. We do have an economist, yeah. yeah. And, and a he, medical anthropologist and uh, yeah, so we've got a, a great group of people who are all too busy to talk as much as we would like, but yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I can imagine. I, you, this kind of, I let this slip by, but I want to circle back to it. So you said you were preparing to teach your 1918 pandemic class when this yes. started. So registration is still open if anybody wants to, to take wow. it because it's still going to be, um, it's going to be all online on uh, Friday starting next week. And um, I mean, it's a discussion class. It's only a one credit class, but uh, we read some of the, the main texts. There aren't a whole bunch um, that study them, that look at 1918 flu. Um, the Catherine Ann Porter one is one of the few co contemporary accounts of the, of the flu at that time. I, I think 
people are just very focused on the war and they just want to forget all the disease. Yeah, I wonder, can you make that syllabus available or the reading list available? Sure, yeah. People would really, um, really appreciate that. I, I wanna um, ask another, we have about 10 minutes left. I wanna get a question here um, from Kim. What have you learned about the ways that academic researchers can and should interface with public officials during, during times like this? Is that interface working well? What, what do we need to work on? I think people are ready, to, many people are ready to help. It's hard to know necessarily where to plug in. And when, um, when these kind of crises occur, uh, government officials are um, extremely busy. So, I mean, we've done a lot of, as a center, and individuals in the center have uh, done a lot of, um, uh, have interacted a lot with government officials, um, but obviously it helps if these ties are there before a crisis time. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, and there's no formula for that, um, but it's, it's something that, you know, government officials also have to want to seek out. <laughs> But can you say a little bit more about, I mean, if you're, I know we're living through this moment, but is there some kind of specific set of skills, training that academic researchers need to be thinking about um, as they're coming up? So I speak for myself, I mean, as a humanities you know, person right. who knows the history of disaster, what do I need to, to have in my toolkit so that actually um, a practitioner or even a public official could find it useful to talk to me? Yeah, I mean, all the, the ways that you become, like that you talk, that you uh, talk to the general public through op-eds, um, through talking to the media and commenting on different things, you know, your Twitter, your Twitter feed. Um, I, I think all of those are, are, are more important than, I, than I, I think I want them to be because they take a lot of time. Um, as an example, um, I, I don't usually like to do media um, stuff because it's, because uh, you just know, you never know how your words are going to be interpreted or sliced in, into a story and, and, um, and, but I did, I did, uh, I was on NPR for the story on gene synthesis security and, um, and somebody, a lawmaker in California heard that and um, and his a member of his staff comment uh, uh, contacted me, and so we worked together, and um, and I was able to have um, give a lot of uh, insight into what would work to increase security in commercial gene synthesis, and and then the the bill has been introduced in in California, and so it's like it's really fantastic when you see huh. something that you do, you know, that's an issue that's important to you, and then has this real world. Uh, um, consequence, um, but I don't, uh, I, it's, I don't, there's no direct path, uh, just knowing the things that people listen to and, um, and knowing their cycles, what the budget cycles are, um, when they are going to be spending money, when Congress is in session, you know, all of these things are important uh, to know to be able to get what you want changed in the world. Do you, does your center have a, a media specialist who, who helps with that? We have a media person, um, but I think we all of us have become much more savvy in this sort of translation role and being able to hear what's going on in the scientific world and then see like how can we how can we influence policy that relates to that. So that just comes um, you know with ex with ex with study and experience. 
but it, it's what you've just described is I think it's also, it's really as it's a second job. I mean, to prepare, to follow the calendar, the legislative calendars, to be attentive to the particular moment of what's in the news. Well, and that's then why people be, hire lobbyists. So yeah. <laughs> so maybe what we need is disaster <laughs> researcher lobby um, to get us heard. I, and I think I've heard similar kinds of ideas to that actually, or something along the lines of, um, of a um, union of concerned scientists, but for disaster right. researchers broadly defined, so that we right. actually, we'll never speak with one voice, we're academics, we shouldn't, but right. that we can amplify perspectives that are useful in a, in a moment. I think going back to the things you started with, the difficulty of sort of building the airplane while it's flying in terms of the data collection or in terms of imagining what are the questions we're gonna think are important about this as we're living through this right now, um, those are uh, um, kinds of questions that uh, necessitate a lot of planning ahead of time, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I find that everybody I know in academia is, you know, already doing pretty much two jobs. And so to have right. some, if not more, yeah. yes. Um, okay. I want to see if there's any other questions here. I see people in the chat are posting useful, they're posting uh, links, they're posting information. Sorry, my cat is on the That's great. Yeah, I've been just reading the questions out of the chat. And oh, great. <laughs> Healthy life forms are good <laughs> to see. I have a feeling that now that I'm going to be uh, teaching my classes next week um, on the internet, this is, uh, this, this is going to be a frequent contributor to the classroom. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, let's get one more question, and this is from Ann Murphy. Do you think you're going to find there's a genetic component to the overactive response that some people have causing the cytokine storm after infection with COVID-19? Right. Um, do, do we think we're going to find that? Um, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no limit to what we can, um, you just need to have controlled studies and, and you need to be ready to go to collect that data. And um, so, so I don't know anyone who is uh, right now. The research that I know of that's going on right now is um, uh, is on trying to test um, clin clinical trials on some of uh, drugs that have already that are already approved that could might be useful and and to look for and to get set up to to receive new um, new therapies or vaccines. So I, I that's that's where the things I've been hearing recently. Um, but studying the, the course of disease and, and factors that might contribute to people's susceptibility, that's all. Um, I'm sure that there are people working on that. All right. Um, is there anything else you wanted to, we covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything else you wanted to, to share? I got a text from a friend who said, did you see what happened in San Francisco? You know, like just now, I haven't had time to even look. And I, I don't know what happened in San Francisco. I don't know. It, 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 the, the, news cycle is happening so quickly. I mean, it's again one of the reasons I wanted to do these calls because um, there's so much, we could have a full New York Times pretty much every day about just the research side right. of what's I, going on. I think all, all I could say is that, um, you know, even though it's hard when we're living minute to minute like this and think consequential things, really big things are happening all the time. Um, I, you know, if people have ideas or things that um, they wish uh, or, or things that would be useful in, in a, another world, in another a time, 
um, I would love to hear it because I, I just want to be able to, there's a very limited amount that um, as an academic that can, uh, can do with, um, you know, I'm not operational in this, in this setting. So what can we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again? Okay. The, from the text, thank you. The mayor of San Francisco and the governor of California have basically said people need to shelter in place. So that goes, that trumps the New Jersey curfew, I would say. I mean, you know, I, I hope that there's uh, some data that is, this is, these decisions are resting on, but there, um, you know, there is also the, the political aspect. So we'll see. Yeah. So I'm going to um, stick with me for one minute. I'm going to make a couple of announcements and then we'll end the call. Um, so tomorrow, at 5 p.m., we have uh, Rob Meyer from The Atlantic. And Rob has been writing stories on his own and with Alexis Madrigal. And he's been writing about the testing issue with the CDC. They, he and Alexis broke a couple of really important, I I'm gonna say early stories. They were like 10 days ago um, about the crisis of the testing. And so that's tomorrow at five o'clock. Uh, please come back for that. Also, please send me your suggestions for future speakers and for information and things that came out of our conversation today. And I'll try to keep all of that in one place and put it up on my Twitter feed. I have a couple of announcements also from the Natural Hazards Center. These come from uh, their director, Lori Peake, who wanted to announce that there, you should basically go to their website and see there's a Converge virtual forum for researchers um, to hear about a new NSF program for directors and researchers with, um, with projects on the COVID-19 virus. And they have launched their own special call for quick response proposals. So that's for researchers who want to do literally research on, on the COVID-19 pandemic as it's, as it's going on. And then lastly, they have an information and resource page and you can check out their link, Natural Hazard Center. You can find them on Twitter or you can find them um, online. So um, I guess we will leave it there. Um, maybe I'll just um, put you as we close on the spot. Um, and if you were going to make your own COVID call and you could get anybody on the phone right now, who would it be? John Bolton. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think we'll... I can't top that. We're going to we're going to close with that. But Gigi, thank you so much for your time today and I hope that everybody can tune in tomorrow and spread the word. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye everybody.